0: There is a fear that I could go back to that shop, and I won't, but yeah, I mean, it's when I was talking about geeking out, reading about other businesses, we're definitely at a pivotal point where companies in our position, a lot of them fail if they're not prepared to get to the next level. It's kind of crucial. I mean, you can't assume you're gonna keep growing at the rate we have. I hope we do, but it's silly to assume that. And so we need to keep reassessing. you are and i think most of us are more impressed with the guy or girl who didn't go to exceptional school and has made it than the person that did the idea of buddies that want to open a bar i've got friends are like let's open a bar together number one it's the worst idea in the world opening a bar and number two opening with your friends is probably even worse expect to fail don't assume you'll fail but you're not going to hit a home run every time and that's okay I'd like to think I'm a good example of just don't assume you're kind of stuck. It would have been very easy at thirty-five, whatever, to sort of, I don't know, throw in the towel. And I didn't, and I'm glad I didn't.
1: Is there one class that if you had to teach it or wanted to teach to entrepreneurs, what would that be and why? That's a good question. Wow. My
0: experience as an entrepreneur, I don't consider myself an entrepreneur, maybe in the traditional sense or Certainly what that word has come to mean in the last 10 or 15 years, because I really do think I kind of fell into where I am today. Whenever I speak to people or I talk to employees or anyone, I just try to encourage people to be open to really anything in life. Just not feel boxed in and be open to possibilities and opportunities.
1: So would it be the ability to be open minded, I guess? Yeah, certainly open minded maybe also be
0: nimble. The caveat there is certainly people and maybe their parents spend a lot of money on formal education. With certain directions that you go, maybe there is less flexibility. I had the benefit of a liberal arts education, good and bad. So I didn't have a roadmap when I got out of college. I sort of bounced around and was in and out of the movie business for 15 years before I landed on
1: something. It sounds like you gave us a little bit of preview of what we're about to talk about. Why don't we go ahead and get started and you just tell us your name, where you're located and what you do for a living. I'm John
0: McDonald. My company is Semi Handmade. We're based right outside Los Angeles in Duarte, California. We make doors for IKEA cabinet systems that we ship all over the US and Canada.
1: And IKEA, most people, luckily, especially because we have a lot of international listeners, I think I have an idea of what that is, but Semi Handmade Doors, so what's that mean? Explain a little bit more about what your company does. So yeah, we're an aftermarket company. And
0: we make doors, as I said, that work with most of IKEA's cabinet system. The way it works is when you go to IKEA and you buy a kitchen, you buy some of their bathroom systems, some of their closets, some media cabinets, you're not required to buy doors. They give you the option of buying really solid boxes, really good interior hardware, and then you're pretty much on your own in terms of the outsides. You can buy their doors. You can make the doors yourself. You can come to a company like ours. That's where we fit. We are firmly within that ecosystem that has cropped up in the last 10 years around IKEA, making basically accessory upgrades. People make slipcovers, they make furniture legs, things like
1: that. Can they buy those doors inside? Sorry, I'm not a big IKEA shopper, but do they just go to you online afterwards or can they buy them in store? Just explain that process for a normal consumer.
0: We're not affiliated with IKEA. Again, we are aftermarket. People find us online. We are pretty well known at this point. We did about 5,000 projects last year and probably. 10,000 kitchens overall in the last couple of years. There is a lot of brand awareness and name recognition and people at IKEA unofficially will sort of point customers in our direction. Otherwise they find us online. We've always worked really hard in terms of co-branding, influencer marketing, things like that. They find us. And how long have you been doing the company for? In terms of an official date, it's probably we kind of launched officially in 2011. The idea was kicking around for at least a year and a half before that I had gone from, as I mentioned, kicking around the film business through my 20s and early 30s waiting tables primarily. Then I landed on furniture making in my mid-30s as kind of a last resort. No experience, but kind of threw myself into it. Took some classes, cut off a few fingers, stuck with it. And I got pretty good. I started to grow a custom business in Los Angeles and was working with good people, good architects, designers, contractors.
1: You were in your mid-30s when you actually started it, right? Right. Okay. And then well, do we want to talk about, at least before that, because we talked about when you got out of college, I just want an idea of how old you are today. Sure. Uh, and yeah, how old are you today? I will be 51
0: in November. I grew up back East when the University of Delaware graduated in 1989. And then I came out to
1: LA right away that following fall. Okay. Yeah. Why don't you take us all the way through sure. there until you started your door business? I got out of school. I had a vague sort of idea that I wanted to
0: live in Los Angeles. I wanted to work in the film business, entertainment. I didn't know what what I was going to do, whether I was going to try to get into acting somehow or whatever. And so I came out here. I lived with a family friend who worked at a really well-known deli in Beverly Hills called Nate Niles, really famous deli. And she was this force of nature, this woman named Kay. So connected to everybody. And she got me a job. At 21, I was riding a bicycle, making $5.99 an hour, delivering mail to Tom Cruise and Eddie Murphy and people like that, who in 1990 were still pretty big. From there, I decided I wanted to get into writing. So I started teaching myself how to screenwrite, which is definitely a technical skill. Easily learned, not as easily able to get success. So I did that through my 20s. I did some production jobs, but I was writing all the time and waiting tables at night in a number of different restaurants in LA. I got to be a good writer and pride myself on being a writer who actually wrote, but was not translating into sales or any kind of compensation. Late 20s, I was sort of drifting, figuring out what I wanted, early 30s, same sort of thing. And at that time, I started to somehow, I started to buy old furniture and refinish it. I would go to swap meets or antique stores, buy old chairs, strip them down, then come back a couple weeks later and try to make 50, 60 bucks. So a friend said to me, you know, why don't you start making furniture? And I hadn't, for whatever reason, thought of that. I had no background in that, no interest, but I started to do that. I signed up for a few classes at a local community college, Cerritos College, has a really spectacular woodworking program. And a week before I was supposed to start the first class you have to take, which is shop safety, I cut off a couple fingers.
1: Which ones? So I
0: cut off my right pinky and halfway through my ring finger. The pinky was not as big a deal. It's more expendable, literally. And they were able to reattach the ring finger, but I did some rehab. It wasn't any kind of deterrent because I knew exactly why I did it, how I did it. It was purely stupidity. And I just signed up for that class. I had class the next week with my hand bandaged and set and I kind of never looked back. So I still waited tables. I waited tables with my hand in a bag, literally. at a sushi bar for the next eight weeks. Kept taking the class, kept getting good. And after about three classes, I sort of teamed up with a buddy of mine who also was in school there. And we rented out a shop and just started to try and get work. That's what I did for the next couple of years. I was still waiting tables the whole time into my early 40s, I guess. And I got to be pretty good. Started to make a little bit of money. But like anything, it's, every job is always your last job in that kind of life.
1: And what's that mean? By like comparison-wise, as far as like money that you're making before waiting tables, and then what you're doing furniture.
0: When you're waiting tables, you could probably make a couple hundred bucks a night, which is actually I mean pretty good. It's a cash business, so there's that. In terms of woodworking, it was probably less. I had no idea. Forget about woodworking, about how to run a business. I wouldn't even call it a business at the time. Everything is just what I said was yeah, every job is your last, and you definitely take
1: some jobs on the chin and. I learned a lot. I mean,
0: I probably made $25,000, $30,000 in
1: woodworking the first year. These type of projects, were they still the like redoing furniture or were contractors coming to you?
0: No, it was so it was custom stuff. I do some tables and furniture and bookcases and things like that. And I had a buddy who taught me how to do cabinet making, how to make cabinets, kitchen cabinets. That's a lot more steady and lucrative, as lucrative as that can be. Certainly more steady. I was doing that early 2000s. One thing I always did Around probably 2006, 2007, I started doing design shows locally. There were a couple of good design shows where you'd run out a booth, 10 by 10 booth, three, $4,000 for three days. And you'd set up your furniture and give out your business cards. And I started to get a lot of business that way. I got some attention through blogs, which were just starting out. And I was always one of the only people locally that was there. It would be me literally at a show like Dwell on Design and then major brands like countertop companies like Caesar Stone companies like Viking and Wolf or whomever, and me. It was always a business. It wasn't just creative sort of endeavor. It was, I got to make money and I got to put my name out there.
1: You did this for several years before you started growing the companies? Right. You know, In terms of timing, around 2008, obviously for
0: everybody, the economy went in the toilet. So I was kind of scrambling. And at that time, I guess right around then I was at Dwell and Design. And a guy came up to me out of the blue and said, have you ever thought about making doors for Ikea cabinets? And I had not. And I frankly did not know what he was talking about. I mean, I knew Ikea kind of maybe as much as you, Austin, or as much as anybody does. And at that point, it was it's where you go to buy your furniture if you're in college or you got a new apartment or whatever. We talked about it that day. And then he came back the next day, again, just a random stranger. And it was just interesting. And so I left the show and for the next six or seven months, didn't do anything, just kind of thought about it and kept doing my custom business. but. As I said, the economy was in the toilet. Things were drying up. I had just gotten divorced and I have a son now who's almost seven, but I didn't have a child at the time. I got divorced and moved into my shop. Me and my dog, Molly, we moved in to save money. I didn't want to see anybody, frankly. So I lived in my wood shop in the office section, no shower. I tell people I was 40. I got in the best shape of my life because to take a shower, I had to go to 24 hour fitness. So I'd go there every day and work out and take a shower, but I could work 80, 90 hours a week. And it's when I first started to think, well, why don't we try this IKEA thing? And so that's where I was born, 2009.
1: Walk us through that in a little bit more detail, what that was like. You said you're trying to save money. Did, do you have any leftover money when you were doing that? And that's kind of hard to imagine just being in a shop like that. Did you even have air conditioning?
0: Yeah, no, it, it,
1: <laughs> it's funny. We kind of
0: converted that into a break room now. It wasn't that bad. I mean, it's sort of because I had always, i left home, at, as I said, 21 I've got like six, seven guys that I'm still really close to that I went to high school with. They all had regular lives, regular jobs, married and had kids. I didn't have any of that. You know, again, I was married. It didn't seem like that big a leap to move into my shop. And it's like anything, I tell people, like, when you look back, you always kind of gloss over maybe how it was inside the moment. I didn't really think about how hard it was. I felt like I didn't have a choice. I'm always clear about the fact that my parents, to this day, have been absolutely unbelievably supportive, emotionally, financially. So it wasn't like I was forced to sort of do that. I could have borrowed some money off them and would have been fine. But personally, yeah, I had no money in the bank. I had huge credit card debt. It wasn't a choice.
1: Well, did you have like other friends to lean on during that point in time? I was fully
0: on my own. And I did have some guys that work for me, probably two or three guys at that point that worked pretty
1: regularly with me. Okay.
0: I mean, that's like 2009, 2010. My eventual partner, Ivan, came on probably around that time. And then by 2011, the transition was like a lot of things gradual. It wasn't like, hey, let's start a business. At that time, I mean, I guess I should say my company was called Handmade. So when I was doing custom, I was called Handmade. When I made this transition, I said, why don't we just call it Semi-Handmade? Because it just made sense. And so it became this thing where you go from 100% custom to me saying to a homeowner, like, hey, the kitchen's going to cost 15000 But if we do some Ikea cabinets, you could probably knock three or 4000 off it. And start doing 100% custom and then it's 90% custom, 10% Ikea, 80, 20, 70, 30 over the next few years. 2011 is when we officially incorporated and wasn't probably until 2012, maybe late, that we got out of any kind of custom and it was 100% Ikea.
1: And at what point did you actually end up moving out of the place that you were living in and get another rental? I got out of there a year later. One challenge, frankly, was like dating. You're living in your shop, <laughs> right, <yeah. laughs>
0: you know, and, and I'm on Match.com or whatever. I was, you know, <laughs> plenty of fish, and it's like, you know, where do you live? And it's like, hey, I live, live work kind of thing. But I met someone, so we were dating. I moved out a year later, lived there for probably a year, and then I guess she and I moved in a year after that, and she eventually was the mother of our son. It was a solid year in that shop. I don't regret it a bit. I look back on it and it's like anything. You have a lot more appreciation down the road. Appreciate
1: you doing the call here.
0: Yeah. Favorite podcast by far. I love it.
1: Oh, yeah? Why is that?
0: So I graduated 2017 from Michigan. I heard that shout out the other day. That was pretty cool. Basically, two months after I graduated, I started listening to the podcast. Loved it. I think there were maybe 30 episodes or something out by that point. And I consider myself to be pretty entrepreneurial. Started a business last year. This helped a ton. And it's hard, I think, to find entrepreneurs. I was just looking for entrepreneurial meetups. And I think, wow, this is more of an awesome opportunity to talk with other entrepreneurs. The value is, I mean, it's insane. Like people make these types of entrepreneurial insight things of thousands of dollars. This is 12 per month, but twelve per month is like nothing.
1: Part of me wanted to talk about it because you literally like moved into your place so you're kind of by yourself, but I guess at least you had some staff with you, but I think a lot of the entrepreneurs that are listening, sometimes they will feel lonely and if they have to make these sacrifices, it's hard to relate to anyone who's had to do something like that. If they have, at least it seems like they might be able to relate to you. Personally, it sounds like the most difficult part was just the dating part, but after you got over that, then life was easier. Dating was definitely not my biggest concern. And again, I have a really strong group of friends
0: People that I went to high school with back in Philadelphia and now spread out, but also my friends in Los Angeles. So yeah, I don't want to minimize that. And of course, my family. I definitely did not fall off sort of the radar. I was still right. sort of actively in my life. But yeah, I mean, I guess I can understand. Look, I was at a place where I was pushing 40 and things were not working. My attitude was I have a big ego like a lot of people and I'm a smart guy and this is crazy. It's a fear and desperation. And that was what motivated me.
1: Well, how about when you were younger? Did you think you would be like further along in life by this point in time? Yeah, I mean, I did. I was telling somebody I didn't have an inferiority complex,
0: maybe had a superiority complex, like I'm going to do a lot of different things. So when that wasn't happening, realizing that the film business wasn't going to work was difficult just in terms of pride or whatever. I was not a happy person. I'm always a tough, cynical person, but I was miserable. That came through in my writing and probably everything else in life. I mean, yeah. I mean, to younger people or whatever, I do feel like, well, shit, man, if I started at 21, where would I be? But that's such a waste of time. I wouldn't be here today if I hadn't followed my exact path, as crazy as that path was.
1: Oh, yeah. I guess I was just thinking that way because sometimes I think, or anyone who's even younger, maybe they were thinking when they were 12, like by the time they're 20, that they'd have their own company or something. And it just being able to forget that and keep moving on. I mean, if you just keep looking in the past of where you thought you were going to be, that's not really helpful or going to help you get to the next step in life. I guess that was part of the reason for me bringing that up when you mentioned where you were at that point in time in your life. It's fascinating to me, just the whole kind of, we talked
0: about at the beginning, this entrepreneur movement. I don't know if it's a movement it has been around forever. It's so much more prevalent. Now you and I were talking about it last week, like, you know, university programs that are dedicated to entrepreneurship. And it's great. The one thing I would say, thinking about it, well, The downside of it is this almost like American idolization of the fact that some people don't want to pay their dues. I remember, again, I sound like an old guy, but I remember being in my teens and 20s and buying albums and standing in line for concerts and sleeping out. And we hear these stories of bands that played like for 10 years in bars with nobody in them and they finally made it. And so that, that kind of the overnight success took 20 years. As opposed to now where you could literally stand in line for three hours at American Idol and maybe become a star. But With some of these entrepreneurs, same thing. I'm going to start a business and it's, we're just going to build it to sell and there's no soul to it. And I don't know how sustainable or successful that model is either
1: hundred percent agree with you. Yeah. When we were discussing that and even bringing it up again, now you were moved into the place you were working for a year. I don't think anyone, like people just think it's easy. Like a lot of people ask me like, how are you able to grow the podcast and do all this stuff? I'm like, well, you don't see how many goddamn hours I'm putting in yeah, and what I'm doing exactly. to get there. Oh, you have to work to do it. Like people forget right. that part. And that's the non-fun part sometimes. To me, it's fun right now, so I'm enjoying it. But it's not a magic pill. It's like think and work, you know, try something new if it doesn't work. So, yeah, that was important to try to think about. No, that's great. I'm definitely like you. I mean,
0: part of what I totally geek out on is hearing people's stories and learning about how they got to where they are. And there really are no shortcuts. And it is extraordinary, the lengths some people have gone to. And those are always the stories we love anyway. I mean, I always say, like, it's not who gives a shit where you went to college. All that matters is where you are. And I think most of us are more impressed with the guy or girl who didn't go to a exceptional school and has made it than the person that did. If you did, who gives a shit? You should have some success.
1: Why don't we talk about where you are today and how you've gotten up to, you're at 40 at this age in 2010, yeah. 2011. Yeah. This is about the time that you made the transition to formerly semi-handmade? Yes, semi-handmade,
0: yeah. So it was, again, we officially incorporated in 2011. And again, I'm just looking at, I'm actually looking at it a while right now, I'm year over year since then. It is pretty extraordinary how we grew. No real plan. We just did. Look, it's a lot of things. It's being at in the right place at the right time. It's the fact that Ikea is an iconic brand like Nike and Starbucks and Apple. And if you're going to piggyback somebody, you might as well do a company like that. And we worked hard. And there's a lot of people at this point that do what we do. Frankly, four or five of them that used to work with us. They have branched off and started their own companies, and
1: that's fine too. There's room out there in the market. You went slowly to 100% of doing this for Ikea instead of doing the custom stuff. Can you tell us some of the difficulties of like why you wanted to make that 100% transition from I guess doing the custom stuff with the kitchens? I mean, was that just draining on you as far as doing that?
0: Yeah, I mean, it's exhausting in the sense that it also involves you've gotta be on site and installing jobs. So if I I make it, I gotta be there too. Whereas with IKEA, We became strictly a door manufacturer all over the country, frankly. That's kind of the dream. We have, I think, about at least 50 kitchens a month in New York area that we ship out there. And they've handled it all. The homeowner or designer has gone to Ikea. They've ordered everything. they designed the project. And they're on their own when it comes to installation. We just get to focus on kind of what we do best. And you're doing custom, and it's work. And I always say the minute you walk inside someone's house, you start losing money because yeah. part of it is maybe the times lack of preparation, but just things come up and walls are out and ceilings aren't flat and floors are all over the place. And it's a nightmare.
1: So you had a couple of guys as you made this transition, right? Yeah. Was it two or three? So why don't we walk through that, like how it is the transition from more of a service based, you know, right. these companies sounds yeah. like to more product based. Again,
0: it was never, it's more sort of an evolution than a plan. It just became, Because it is kind of fun to look back when we started really just to ship across the country. And it is sort of milestones of the company. When you start out, everything is local. Everything's Los Angeles. and then people start hearing about it. And frankly, I wish I should take the time to go back and look where we started shipping. Because people are guinea pigs. I mean, that's the other thing. Looking back, I feel some responsibility for, I mean, we always made a great product. But you're doing things for the first time. And customer doesn't necessarily know that. Right. And you don't want to necessarily let them know that. And frankly, and they're spending a lot of money. I mean, that's one distinction I always make is we're not a product. People are spending at this point, an average kitchen customer close to $4,000. I mean, someone could spend two grand or they could spend 20, depending on the size of the project. But it's not an insignificant thing. And especially your kitchen. I mean, your kitchen is 50, 60, 80 different pieces and you're there all the time every day. It's not a sofa that if you don't like it, you know, we'll put a blanket on and we'll stick it upstairs or something. It was never a decision like hey we've gone from service to the other it just sort of happened
1: yeah but i mean i'm just thinking in your head did you like want that to happen you kept thinking and hey i want to stop doing this as much or like why did it start taking off more but did just ikea start calling you more so you're like okay that just became a higher percentage of my business to be clear yeah ikea was never calling us i mean yeah i mean customers yeah if you mean customers
0: yeah yeah people were finding us online and they were reaching out and it just became like, why do we need to do that? Why do we need to drive to this person's house and spend like a week there when we could just make doors or even outsource the doors? So that's one thing we started to do too is local companies that have the capacity to make doors, frankly, as good as us or better, why wouldn't I have them make it? and then we just package it and sell it that's the dream i mean that's the way most people run their business
1: yeah and sorry yeah i didn't mean ikea customers yeah. there but to get these ikea customers were you doing seo or something like cuz this is a transition whether you like can remember or not i mean it has to be at some yeah. point like what made it happen
0: yeah it's all search and it was never seo is still something we kind of are learning about we're good at having that kind of presence but yeah it was always about bloggers i mean i was always good at reaching out to other companies designers I found online said, hey, will you try our product? I'll give you free stuff. If you like it, write about it.
1: Yes. So that's what I'm talking about. This is what helped you make that transition. Tell us about that. And what else helped you grow into this part of the business? Yeah. I mean, again, it's certainly, it's like being at the right place at the right time. And it starts with, you got to have a great product.
0: We certainly have that. We had a great story and People picked up on it. It was before, personally, I didn't get on Instagram, I guess, till about three and a half years ago. I'm amazed when people have been doing it since whenever it started, 2012. But blogs were still writing about us. People were finding us in different news outlets and things like that. But it was always word of mouth. Website wasn't great at the beginning. It's gotten much better, continues to get improved. We feel great about where we are, but we know that you know we can't ever slow
1: down. If I'm looking back, it's first reaching out to those bloggers and those companies that are writing, I guess, about what you can get at IKEA. I mean, is there specifically any way you would track this or you just randomly email in during part of the week or what else could you look back on and tell us what helped you grow so we can learn from it? Yeah.
0: I mean, I think a kind of, it's kind of turning point for us was we worked with a blogger, the designer in LA, a woman named Sarah Sherman Samuel, who we actually still work with. And we have a line of doors with her, our first sort of signature line of doors with a designer. She reached out out of the blue and said, Hey, I like your stuff. You want to work together and she was doing her kitchen in her house in venice california so we kind of laughing with her we may have given her 20 30 off it wasn't a lot and she bought our doors she painted them herself she installed them she did everything and got it the project published in remodelista which is a pretty big blog still and it just went viral this kitchen was spectacular all we did was make the doors as i say and she did everything else and it got picked up by yahoo and it was everywhere And to this day, people still write to us, email us or call us and say, I saw Sarah's kitchen. I mean, she's had so many people knock it off, which is maybe a cruder way of saying, paying homage to her. It was explosive. And from that we started getting more and more people reaching out. That's the greatest stamp of approval too. Not just customers, but other designers that say, hey, I'm gonna work with you as
1: well. And what year was that, that she did that? That was 2013. Okay, can you walk us through like the revenues and the employees to date? As much as I can trust the books back then, We did about a little
0: under about 250,000. At that point, probably three or four employees. I'm looking right at the sheet. 2012, pretty much doubled to about 460, 470. 2013 was when we hit a million. So we did about almost a million three. I look back at these numbers. It does kind
1: of blow my mind. I was going to say, how many employees were you thinking about at the time? There's probably 10 employees or probably a little
0: higher, maybe closer to 15. By 2014,
1: there's probably 20 employees at least. And that's like about two, seven. So you kept doubling. It sounds like everyone yeah, was every yeah, year.
0: 2015, at that point, yeah, there's got to be 40 employees. We opened a showroom in Burbank, a brick and mortar showroom by the IKEA there. And we also opened one in Palm Springs. And that was kind of a big step, too, yeah. having a place for people to come. Right across from IKEA? No, it was about a mile away. Okay. Well, it's closer now. It so that was 2015. Yeah, we did about 3.8. 2016, we did 6.9. So that was a big jump. We have moved into WeWorks. So that's another thing we could talk about. When we decided we didn't need really the big brick and mortars, we just wanted to have a presence. But we WeWork was another rocket ship company taking off co-working spaces. So we moved into a couple spaces in New York where people could come and see us and one in Chicago and one out here. So that was 2016, 2017, we hit 10 million. So just over that, which was amazing. And now we're on track for about, hopefully about 30% increase from last year. Now we have 75 employees. It's gotten pretty big.
1: Yeah, I know. That's great that you gave us a numerical timeline. That's what I always like because it helps me in my mind when I'm listening. The listeners get an idea of what your growth was like. Why don't we just jump back to say like 2013 when that kitchen came live that you're talking about? Before then, you had only had like a couple employees. So why don't we talk about any like difficult times during this dealing with employee growth or trying to train people? That seems like it's a big obstacle for a lot of owners. I say all the time, if I started a business today, these are the things I would do differently.
0: And certainly that's true. When I started, there was no business plan. There was no roadmap. We just sort of figured it out as we went. We figured out how to pack things. That was a huge learning curve. Shipping stuff across the country, it's easy when you're doing it in LA and you can drop it off. When you ship to New York or to Toronto, that's where it gets terrifying. Because we still were, even though we weren't doing custom work, a lot of what we do, these beautiful veneers, are real wood and they are one of a kind. So if you get a walnut kitchen, your kitchen is different than your neighbor's kitchen, than the guy two states over, whatever. And so if a piece gets damaged, whether it's my fault or whether it's the LTL company or your fault, it's a challenge. And someone's got to send it back to us. We've got to repair it. Getting people on board with that. I would say the transitions are going from an LA-based company to now we want to be national. What does that
1: mean? And so you said something about the packing. So why don't we talk about that a little bit more? What do you have to do? What were you doing before where it might've got messed up? And what did you learn and how to pack it?
0: No disrespect to LTL companies, and I doubt any of them are listening anyway.
1: (laughs) And what's LTL, just so people know?
0: Less than a truckload, I guess. It's like shipping pallets. Okay. So our typical kitchen is on a four by eight pallet. It's going to weigh about 600 to 800 pounds, and you may have two pallets, because you've got big panels that go next to your refrigerator. It's a big deal, and it could be anywhere from 40 pieces to a 100 pieces. The point is, if these guys can find a way to fuck something up, I mean, they literally will. (laughs) And you could make it as bulletproof as possible in terms of packing. And if you put a cone on top that says, do not stack, you can almost be assured things will get stacked.
1: (laughs) This side up. (laughs) (laughs) We're out
0: shopping competitive rates for LTL. Maybe I shouldn't say this, but it's true. It's not an easy job by any stretch. It shouldn't be as difficult as it is, but it's scary. And so, yeah, I'm putting, say, $8,000 worth of merchandise in someone else's hands. And it's got to get across state lines or across the country. And that's terrifying.
1: I mean, talk about that frustration. That has to be difficult because it seems like you're doing everything perfect up to that point. And then something gets messed up and then it seems like it costs you a lot of money. Yeah, it costs a lot of money. I remember when I was
0: still doing it, probably around 2014, I remember
1: taking a trip across with my
0: girlfriend at the time and we were driving Northern California. I remember pulling over and just ripping into DHL, the LTL company on Facebook. Like Mm -hmm. you guys don't call me back. And the problem was I did it on Facebook and stupidly, I didn't realize like, my friends could see it. It was really frustrating why they would see the shit that I was writing (laughs) (laughs) to DHL and saying, you assholes didn't call me back and blah, blah, blah. This is a nightmare. And they did call me back and that was great, but everyone else saw it and it was kind of stupid. But that was the beginning of the world we live in where I say now, as you you know, and we know, man, this is, it's 24 hour customer service kind of thing. People have no patience. Great. Yeah. Something isn't right. I'm going to hit you up on Twitter like, Hey, Sammy Hame, what the hell? Mm-hmm. Luckily, that never happens, knock on wood, and I'm amazed. Pun intended. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but it is, like you said, we screw things up too. There were times where things were moving so quickly that occasionally a guy would damage a piece while packing it and be afraid to say something so they would actually pack a damaged piece, which is insane. And clearly, us not communicating—like you're never going to get in trouble for that. Like you're going to get in trouble if you ship a damaged piece, (laughs) right? Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. I get you.
0: (laughs) Right. I mean, and that's where you're like, oh my god, that just happened a few times. But it's like, we need to be a lot better in terms of messaging and communicating. That's one thing we've gotten over. Look, in terms of measures of success, I consider the fact that certain losses, being able to let that go, as a measure of success. If something gets screwed up and we got to redo it, and it costs you a couple thousand. I mean, like in the past I would lose sleep over it, I would get an ulcer, I mean, whatever. And now it's like that's just part of the job and just hopefully we learn from it.
1: It's really insightful. So as soon as you said you were setting up the Patreon, it was just like, yeah, I'll help this guy. You know, I take a lot of value from it. You know, it's as simple as that. Yeah, I really appreciate that, man. Well, I was going to say, have you checked out our newest Patreon episode? Yeah, I was just like, oh, well, I'm in the car. I'll just listen to it, whatever. But I'm not getting anything out of this. And then you're like, wow. I'm not that naive or anything, but it really did open your eyes. So with Patreon, I heard it
0: many times because you have that many episodes of sign up. So that's always in the back of mind. But then I checked it out a few times and I was like, do I really want to do this? So I'll push it off a little bit. And then you posted your goal achievement of 69 Patreon members. And I was like, you know what, what better time than now? Originally, I was going to go for the lower one, the $9 a month. But one, I want to have the conversation with you. But two, I always find that anytime I cheap out, I always find that I want to return it and upgrade to what I really, really wanted. So that's why I'm paying the higher one, if that makes sense. But it was just constantly pushing it off, pushing it off. And then I would just like, fuck it. I already listened to all of them. So
1: why not? Well, what do you think you're really great at today or was great at then? so we can learn from as far as like growing the company and working with all these people?
0: I would say personally my greatest strength is, I guess, relationship building. I would say like being fearless in, especially professionally, just reaching out to people and having a genuine curiosity and enthusiasm for what other people do and learning about it. And frankly, learning if there's a way we can work together. When I was doing those shows, those design shows, and we still do them multiple times a year, I always called it like design camp. So we would go away, to like Toronto or Vancouver, New York, Chicago, wherever, a couple times a year. And you'd have friends from different companies, some of them from LA, but some of them from all over the country. And you'd kind of just hang out for like five days and bond and go eat and drink. And then you wouldn't see them again for like five months. And some of those became professional relationships where we actually worked together. And some of them just became just great people to commiserate with and learn about how they run businesses too.
1: It sounds like it also helped you grow the business marketing-wise even when you're reaching out to the bloggers and whatnot. I did a little bit in May talking to customers and
0: designers at a show. We did a big show in New York. In the last couple of years, I kind of separated myself from that. I like to sort of hang back and watch people and listen to people talk Mm -hmm. when they come up to our booth. And then I guess go talk to my friends. And it's a lot more fun that way. But it is business building. And there are things that, I don't know, relationships, it's interesting. Through friendships, like two years later, you start working together, which is how you grow a business too. That's the fun for me.
1: Yeah, it seemed like that helped you be able to grow the business up to that point. But why don't we go ahead and jump back to, we we're talking about 2012 when you had 10 employees and that growth. How about yeah. through 2013 to 2015? Why don't you tell us what you learned then? There were certainly lots of ups and downs. It's easy to gloss over things. A couple of years later, there was a lot of pressure. Why?
0: Just the idea of building systems. I mean, systems isn't even a word we used. Kind of like we said, making the transition from being a local business to trying to be a national business and then starting to ship internationally to Canada. And what's that like and what does that involve? And also hiring. You start bringing in people to fill management positions. And that's something that I had no experience with. Well, I certainly wasn't a manager anywhere. But I mean, I only had
1: jobs that were kind of entry
0: level. jobs. I never had an office job. That was something to learn too, to communicate that way.
1: Yeah. So tell us about that. What would you do again or not do if we had to hire a manager?
0: I mean, I would start with the management team is key. I'm proud of the fact that we've worked really hard to strengthen ours. But at the beginning, you're just hiring people and then promoting them. And that's just what you do. Someone becomes proficient at something. And so it seems normal to say, okay, well, now we're going to promote you to do this because you were able to do that. And that certainly isn't the best plan. I mean, at the beginning, it was messy. I was like a tornado, I'm sure. I mean, I know people remind me because it was exciting, but it was also terrifying. What were you terrified about? Just because it's going to go away. And I still have that. Now it's hopefully more motivating factor, but it is because it happened. It's not as maybe random as I'm saying it is. It wasn't, I didn't hit the lottery or anything. I worked really hard, but there is a fear that I could go back to that shop and I won't. But yeah, I mean, it's when I was talking about geeking out, reading about other businesses, we're definitely at a pivotal point where companies in our position, a lot of them fail if they're not prepared to get to the next level. It's kind of crucial. I mean, you can't assume you're going to keep growing at the rate we have. I hope we do, but it's silly to assume that. And so we need to keep reassessing.
1: Well, how's your work life during this whole point in time? You're saying you worked really hard. I mean, was it you'd come in at nine, leave at five? My life is definitely, I've got a lot more flexibility now. There's a doubt about that. Mm -hmm. And I have a
0: son who'll be seven. So that's frankly my number one priority. But back then there was no separation. Work is everything. It was Saturday, Sundays too, or? Yeah, Saturday, Sundays for a long time until I cut that out. I didn't become probably obsessive looking at my phone until the last three, four years, because everything is... Again, instant access 24 seven, you can see everything. And that's a good thing and a bad thing. I probably was not as great at compartmentalizing. That may have affected certainly some relationships, but my career was everything.
1: Were you like a 100% owner of the company this whole time?
0: No, so my partner Ivan came on and so he owns a smaller stake in the business. We were friends and he had another business that kind of went in a different direction. And so he came on board and then he got equity probably a couple of years in. Well, how do you do that? That's a good question. Hopefully you do it as professionally and buttoned up as possible. And that's something we're kind of finally getting to due to whatever on my part. With him or with anybody, I mean, it is about the relationship. We work together really well. We certainly have butted heads over the years and we still do at times because we're very different in how we deal with things. I think we're also good at the areas that we focus on, but it's a challenge. I know personally, I'm not the easiest person certainly to be with in any kind of relationship, but to work with.
1: Yeah, but as a friend, I'm just curious, say if I wanted to hire a friend to come work with me too, and then I want to give him some equity. How did y'all decide on that? Like if we wanted to bring on a friend as a partner to help us with our business? Yeah,
0: look, it's hard because it really depends on where you are in the business too. If you're at the beginning where there's less value to the business, it's easier to do. Say here's X amount, 10, 15, 25, whatever percent. It's certainly more complicated the more mature your business is or more successful. One thing I've learned, and I've done a couple of programs with other entrepreneurs in the last year, which have been great. And some of those people are like, rule number one is never going to business with your friends. It's the normal thing to do. And it doesn't mean you can't do it, but it can definitely go south. It's something to think about. The idea of buddies that want to open a bar, I've got friends that are like, hey, let's open a bar together. Number one, it's the worst idea in the world, opening a bar. And number two, opening with your friends is probably even worse. Have you maintained your relationship? Yeah, we definitely do. We're not where we used to be, where it could get very animated in mm. terms of our exchanges. And we weren't good also, at like compartmentalizing that we would do that in front of other people. Sounds like that's one thing we should probably never do. It is. That's something I look back on and it's like, ugh, it's embarrassing. It's part of the process. And maybe that's the nicest way to spin it. It's not preferable and it definitely affects other people. Probably the hardest thing for me, and I chalk it up in some ways a lot of laziness, is not accepting that I'm not a sole proprietor and I haven't been, frankly, forever. And how I am or how things go or the image you project affects other people. Even if you think it doesn't, I could walk into a room. Like when I was waiting tables, I was a great waiter, but I was tough. And I always had like a very focused look on my face. And people thought I was pissed off. And sometimes I was, but most of the time I wasn't. I was just like, what's next? What am I doing? And even here, I could walk into a shop in the past. If I was in a bad mood or stressed out, people would be afraid. I didn't understand why. I don't know. That seems like a small thing, but I've been constantly reminded of that. Um, If I haven't sort of been great at that, it's frankly all on me.
1: That makes sense. If you're coming in, you're just focused running your job just because you're not smiling doesn't mean you're not happy. It just means you're focused. But the outward perception you've learned over time matters a lot more than you think. Talking about it now, I think that like,
0: Certainly there have been a few people, I'm thinking of one guy in particular has been here probably for like the longest, at least five years going on six. And I remember someone telling me like, he just feels like he can't talk to you the way he used to talk to you or you're just different. And I'm thinking I am different, but I also understand how when he first started, it was a totally different dynamic and now it's somewhere else. And I don't know if I can change that, but I'm aware of it and I get that person's point. I'm just worried about shit that I wasn't worried about because there's a lot more responsibility. It never excuses bad behavior. I want to make that clear, never. But when there's a lot more going on, it can be harder at times to sort of
1: hide that. Because your roles change. maybe before, did y'all used to like make the doors together or something? And now you're more the CEO? Yeah. I mean, there's certainly that. I'd like to think that I'm as
0: informal. I'm certainly as informal in terms of just how I dress or how I carry myself now as I was then. That's never changed. And I kind of pride myself on that. Like I don't, I hope I don't put on any kind of airs or anything like That, that doesn't matter to me. Again, people that impress me are the people that are unassumingly successful. That's what I aspire to. Like you'd never know. And I do like to think that I'm approachable, but I'm also not around as much as I used to be, frankly, whether it's I'm working from home or I'm traveling. And that makes it probably harder at times for people to come up and talk to me.
1: What's been the hardest part about like making that transition, maybe for the guy who's listening, who's had a company for a few years and is growing to the point where yours is and psychologically, do you have to make that move or it just happens over time? Just tell us what that transition has been.
0: I think, yeah, it's a good question. To me, it's all about personal accountability. And that comes back to the question of who you are in terms of character, but also who you surround yourself with. And so I've always with my friends and certainly people here at Semi Handmade, I have people that call me on my shit. At times, it's well-deserved. As I mentioned in the last year too, it's also surrounding myself with other men and women that run businesses very different than mine and learning from them and networking that way, which I hadn't done. And I started doing this program in the fall of last year and I met all these people from the East coast and they were all in like CEO groups and mentoring groups and things like that. And I was like, wow, I don't have any of that. That, to me, has been a huge help, too. How do you decide to do these groups? And tell us about that group. Yes, one of the things we do with our growth is, and again, I'm very much, whether it's like doing podcasts like this or reaching out to media outlets or having a publicist, frankly, that it's always putting my name out there and our company's name out there. In 2015, we applied to like Inc. Magazine, Inc. 5,000 fastest growing private companies in the U.S. And we had a tremendous amount of growth. So we made it in the top 500, which is great. And people start coming out of the woodwork. That's frankly, people that want to offer you money, people that want to do whatever. And so that's a good thing. And it's a bad thing. It's flattering. And so from that, we got some attention and I got hooked up with a group. A few people, Louis Schiff, a guy named Norm Brodsky, who had kind of been at Inc., sort of come up through the ranks there. Some of those people are still there doing some freelance writing, but they're all about entrepreneurship and mentoring and teaching. And Lewis in particular, who runs it is amazing. And he's one of these people that loves working with owners, and helping them out. In the last year, that's been an amazing resource. Well, what's the name of the group? It's called Birthing of Giants and it's got some different levels of it. I would definitely encourage any entrepreneurs out there, business owners to look into it. Birthing of Giants. The guy's name is Lewis Schiff, based out of New York, but we do programs all over the country. And yeah. We just got together at UCLA last week for a three-day program. And part of it is, you know, as much as the classroom stuff, learning about investing and basic stuff, if you were going to sell your company, different things like that, it's just the social aspect is so important because it's like anything. When you open yourself up to meeting other people and putting yourself out there and being honest, it can be a lunchtime conversation. It can be conversation over drinks with another business owner that can be so critical to,
1: I don't know, unlocking something, how you do what you do. And I love that. Did you find any other business owners while you're like, say, in the early stages when you're making your company or you just focused on yours? No, no, no. So again, I've got a lot of companies that I really admire and that I consider
0: friends personally and also professionally. But companies like in L.A., there's Laguna Beach, there's a lighting company called Cerno. Three guys went to high school together and started this amazing lighting business. And so there are people that I've known for six or seven years. And I can remember one of the founders, a guy named Brett, who's kind of the business side of things. And I remember being at a show with him when I first met him in Palm Springs, God, like five years ago. I went up to him when we were talking and I was like, so what's hard numbers? I forget what I was asking. Like difference between hard numbers and soft numbers and in terms of accounting and all kinds of stuff. And he was like so kind. It's funny because he's like 15 years younger than me too. And he's like kind of just explaining like numbers and what they mean. And it was like business 101. There's a company called Lal Designs based out of Duluth, Minnesota. A spectacular company, outdoor furniture made out of recycled milk bottles. Pretty well known. There's a company, Hennepin Made Lighting Company in Minnesota. So there's places all over the place, businesses that I love and admire. And I've learned so much from them, whether they know it or not.
1: Well, do you have suggestions on like how we could do that or find those same type of owners when someone's listening to a podcast like this? Hopefully they're learning from your experience, but I think it's important for the people listening to find those other entrepreneurs that they can network with. I don't know if you have any suggestions on what they could do to find that.
0: Yeah, I would definitely say, you and I talked about last week, Austin, it's like through magazines like Entrepreneur and Inc. and Fast Company and stuff, it's just so different now in terms of resources and reading books. Maybe there's too many books you could read. My thing is always reaching out to people, whether through social media or whatever, looking at these business groups, depending on where you are, seeing who's out there. Um, Even if it means, depending on what you do, starting a group amongst yourselves with like businesses. Like businesses is the obvious thing. These are my buddies and we all do the same thing. To me, the greater value is people that do nothing like what you do. I think you can get so much more knowledge and wisdom out of that. It's a cliche, but businesses are businesses, especially trying to build them and the foundation. It's not that different by industry. I would encourage people to, again, it's like, get off your ass. I mean, I guess the nice thing is you can be on your ass in front of a computer. (laughs) There are resources out there, but don't be afraid to sort of put yourself out there. I like talking to people, especially people that are starting out. As long as you're sincere and have sort of a, I don't know, professional about it, people generally love answering questions. 5% of people maybe are assholes in the world in general, but most people, like, they appreciate curiosity for what they do. You'd be surprised the people that will help you from all levels, really successful people. If you ask the right way, will respond, but you got to do
1: it. You know, you got to be willing to actually do it. That's the main thing. Again, I guess coming full circle about actually doing the work and not just talking or thinking about it. Because if you don't do it, no one's going to do it for you. I harp on this almost, it seems like almost every episode now, but the worst thing that's going to happen if someone's going to say no, or maybe they send a like smart ass response to you or a dickhead on their response to you. If they are, then whatever. It's going to happen, but it's worth doing something. Yeah. You got to find a way to let it roll off you. And also, I mean, again, talking to entrepreneurs that have done this a lot longer than
0: me and have done multiple things, expect to fail. Don't assume you'll fail, but you're not going to hit a home run every time and that's okay. I don't know. And the other thing, podcasts are completely new to me. And so I started absorbing them in the last few months and stuff. After Kate Spade died and hearing the story of her company and how she and her husband built it is extraordinary and awful and poignant and sad in terms of what's happened. But that's so inspirational where she just came across as so unbelievably humble and kind and nurturing and funny and everything. And that's where you're like, oh, shit, she sounds like a normal person. And she was. So I encourage people to do that. Go out and listen to other people,
1: hear what they have to say. Well, they obviously are right now if they're listening to this podcast. So that's good. And they're obviously smart people. But how about the future of your company? You said you're at the crossroads. What do you see for the future now? One of the things that I've sort of come to is I want to be more than an IKEA door company.
0: We don't have to be only that. What I've realized is we're more of a brand than we are a specific product with the relationships that we've built and continue to build and sort of the reach that we have, there's no reason why we couldn't move towards a more lifestyle positioning. And that could be Just in the kitchen, whether it's branching out to utensils and co-branding with other companies that do anything from aprons, shelving, things like that, to the rest of the house. That interests me and that's what's fun for me. And so we do have some partnerships coming up with companies that are frankly not anybody we would have ever worked with. The other side of it is moving from out of manufacturing. I mean, we've sort of slowly transitioned from 100% in-house manufacturing when I started to at this point about 30%. The rest of it is made around the U.S from great companies that have massive capacity, but they're able to do it better than us. And that's the only way to go. That's not our strength. So I want to focus on growing the company, growing the brand, focusing on marketing, sales, customer service, and letting the other people handle making things.
1: Well, we appreciate you doing the interview. Is there one last thing that you might want to leave all the entrepreneurs with? I know we've talked about a few things, especially here at the end, but any last words of wisdom for everybody? No, I appreciate the platform,
0: Austin. I appreciate you reaching out. I'd like to think I'm a good example of just don't assume you're kind of stuck. It would have been very easy at 35, whatever, to sort of, I don't know, throw in the towel. And I didn't. And I'm glad I didn't, obviously. I guess the last thing I would say is, yeah, I have my son at 44. And he is the most important thing in my life. In terms of a measure of success, it's having the time to spend with him. I'm coaching his baseball team the last two years. You know, that was one thing. In 2009, I remember driving around when I met his mother before we had him and say, man, I want to have time to coach. How can that guy be out there coaching at four o'clock? But I wouldn't do that. And I was able to do that. I have
1: done that. I'm as proud of that as anything. That's not a bad goal to have either. When I talk about building businesses and stuff, it's more about being able to have the lifestyle to do whatever you want. Maybe someone honestly just wants to work and build a billion-dollar business who's listening. Well, that's fine, too. But like you said, the guy who wants to make sure he's there for his kid at that 4 o'clock. And if you kept working the jobs you were, then you probably wouldn't have that ability. Right. If someone wanted to say thank you for doing the interview, what's the best way for them to reach you? I'm pretty easy to find, as long as it's not a dirty picture or heavy customer service issue. Yeah.
0: You can reach me at john at semi-handmade doors.com. I'm easy to find there, but yeah, I love talking as you can probably tell. So, and I love, again, I would encourage people to reach out to me. And if I can point you in a direction to help, I'd love to be able to.
1: Great. Well, thank you for doing the interview, John. My pleasure. Thanks, Austin. If you have questions that you want answered on a follow-up episode, then leave us a voicemail or text us at one 305 3469. This is our new phone number for all of you to voice your questions or comments about the show. So just leave your name, place where you're calling from, and message, and we'll play your recording for our thousands of listeners worldwide. Again, that number is 1-305-985-3469.